Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Momenta Edge podcast. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta, and we like to bring you our uh, some of our favorite thinkers and entrepreneurs, and today we have uh, the pleasure of uh, Dale Calder, who's the uh, uh, co-founder or founder and CEO of Rev2, um, but Dale also has an amazing history as a pioneer in connected industry and working with industrial technologies. Dale, it's it's great to have you on. Nice to be with you, Ed. <laughs> so, and, uh, the rest of the guys out there. Absolutely. Uh, so, what I think it would be great if you could provide a just a bit of your background. I think a lot of what a lot of people may not appreciate. Uh, they may, you know, they may know some of the work that you did, you know, be, be, immediately before Rev Two, but uh, but you got a really interesting background, and I'd love to to hear a bit about you know kind of what got you into technology and and you know the path that you followed that is that's brought you to to Rev Two today. <laughs> well, that's a long path, so maybe I'll try to give the abridged version. <laughs> so uh, I'm a technology guy. Uh, my background is all about technology. And, um, you know, I kind of like technology not from the perspective of just, you know, the technology. I always like technology from the perspective of what you can do with it. So I kind of think, uh, fancy myself a little bit as an inventor and as a dreamer of kind of new ways to do things. And technology is my canvas. So, uh, so my background, you know, I, I started really at the advent of the PC. So uh, I kind of missed the mini computer revolution <laughs> at the time, but I came in uh, into the industry when the PC was starting to gain uh, some prevalence and dominance. And uh, my background really was about initially, you know, kind of applying that concept of distributed computing to you know different areas and uh, industrial was the area that we operated on first with that and then from the you know kind of concept of processing power you know being uh, made available i got really heavily into the concept of uh, information being made available through connectivity and um, as i started to kind of you know get into the more entrepreneurial side of my activity you know, I founded a few companies that were really centralized on uh, the concept of connectivity. Uh, my first one was a company named FactorySoft. Uh, we were the first guys to figure out how to make uh, OLA for process control, known as OPC, work. And uh, we built a toolkit that was at one time, you know, used in almost every uh, every factory driver out there. And that one was really about, you know, helping companies better manage connectivity from real-time assets into kind of human hands, you know, HMIs. And then uh, as the internet started to, you know, take root, you know, I saw an opportunity to not just leverage connectivity for moving information, I like say 10 feet, but to move it across the globe. And so I started a company called Exceda that was, you know, a pioneer in the internet of things. and. Uh, between myself and uh, my partner and the companies that I've started, a gentleman named Jim Hansen, uh, we, you know, invented a lot of the technology 
that was involved in the Internet of Things, uh, especially on a wide area basis. And um, and so now I'm uh, I've kind of taken the next step in my career. Uh, after we sold Exceda a few years back, uh, we started uh, thinking about well, now that data has been moved all over the place, what do you do with it? And so we've created a company called Rev2 that uh, that makes that happen. But ultimately, you know, my my you know kind of background on technology has been about you know moving information and making it valuable. And that's really been the you know kind of the two trends of of what's taken me to where we are today. Awesome. So, what was it that you know that really attracted you to industrial technology? I, 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 certainly, uh, you know this is a uh, you know there's there the, the technologies are are you know have been I guess uh, you know developed in silos over you know, many years and, and it's a, it's a pretty, you know, pretty tough problem to, to solve. I mean, what was the, you know, was there a trigger that had, uh, that really inspired you to, to, you know, to go after the, the market with factory soft? Well, it's, uh, it's funny, you know, my, my whole early career, you know, was in industrial technology. So, um, when I came out of college, uh, I knew I wanted to do one thing. I wanted to build products. And I had an opportunity to build products with a company called Westinghouse Electric. And we made a distributed control system that was used to run big power plants. And this was back in the day, you know, when we made everything. You know, we made boards, memory systems, screens, you know, you'd make everything associated with these kind of computer systems. And these things were massive and expensive, but it was distributed. So it had networking. It was really a an interesting platform. And so early on, I got introduced to kind of both the concept of making products and making products for industrial scale problems. And, uh, and frankly, I, I kind of loved it. You know, I found them to be meaningful problems. I found them to be really interesting. I mean, they had a lot of uh, real time aspects, you know, the things that they did were mission critical. So it was important. And it really got me, uh, you know, into the, the whole whole arena. You know, I evolved off of the you know, kind of DCS system into doing basically a PC version of that, where we made operator consoles out of PCs so that, uh, you know, you could put screens on. Back in those days, they were DOS screens, and then eventually they were Windows screens. And so the kind of those first two steps, you know, laid the foundation for at least understanding you know, what people wanted to do with data from all these real-time sources. And that's what got me into the factory soft side. You know, once we realized that, uh, you know, every company that was making an HMI system at that time had to write their own portfolio of drivers and, and maintain them, it, it was kind of a bear. And it was really an expensive tax on the whole industry. You know, the idea of kind of leveraging uh, an open standard for facilitating that connectivity was really compelling to us, and uh, and that's what what we got into FactorySoft about. What were what were some of the challenges with with data at that point? I, I mean, at at uh, I guess at the you know it, it, at this stage, I mean this this was the the period where the uh, you know the initial uh, 
SQL database wars were were underway, and uh, certainly on the enterprise, there was you know there was a lot of uh, kind of initial groundwork that had been built. Were there were there were there some initial challenges in dealing with uh, you know factory data and industrial data as compared to you know what was going on in the on on the business world or or traditional IT? At well, the time? I think the general back in those days, data was like it was locked up in Fort Knox. So, um, you know, it was, uh, it was in an area and you just couldn't get at it. And sometimes it was purposeful, sometimes it just wasn't purposeful. It just wasn't accessible. And, um, and that really caused a lot of problems. You know, if data doesn't flow, then, you know, humans have to flow to where the data is in order to, to make modifications or changes. And so I think the, you know, if you kind of look back in the, you know, 80s was making computing power distributed, uh, 90s was really starting to lay the foundation of global connectivity. You know, this whole idea of connectivity and then data flow, and of course, you know, the databases were you know, kind of coming along at those times as well, and making it, uh, you know, being able to remember it and making that all accessible. You know, it really changed the game on how we architect, build, and use systems. And so that's, uh, to me, it was really the, you know, the availability of data, you know, making it something that you could actually action on and see and interact with, that, uh, that was really the, the key innovation during those times. Who else was was involved in trying to solve these problems? I mean, in that uh, in that era, there were. As, I mean, I think as you alluded, I mean, you were one of the first people to uh, really to attack this problem. You know, why why didn't this uh, uh, problem, this the, these pain points, you know, have sol- solutions from either some of the big tech guys or uh, some of the some of the big industrials? Was there, you know, how would you characterize the the state of the market at that point and 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 how it evolved? Well, the you know it's it's funny. It's not dissimilar from what it is today, right? You know, the majors are solving problems at scale using you know the technology that has become mainstream, and the uh, you know young companies are you know innovating on the technology side to kind of solve problems in new and different ways, or to solve different problems that are currently being ignored. And so the the majors, you know, originally were doing things all with kind of hand-built distributed systems and, you know, solving, you know, the problems and the way in which they were, you know, solved in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, But, you know, the companies like Wonderware and Intellusions and, uh, you know, guys of that nature, you know, those companies were all, you know, trying to make the, you know, trying to do it in a more open and different way. And, uh, you know, that's obviously become mainstream today. Uh, but, you know, back in those days, again, you know, you're solving problems in a, you know, you're solving problems using a technology stack that was unproven in the industrial domain. Mm. And uh, it turned out to be a compelling solution to the way things needed to be done in factories and plants and, you know, and pretty much everywhere. So it ended up eating the world. <laughs> but, you know, back then it wasn't so obvious. Well, were there were there uh, challenges in really convincing uh, factory operators and manufacturers to really to to change their thinking at the time? I mean, what what were the 
the key messages that that you had to uh, really had to articulate and, and any you know key resistance that you had to come, overcome at the time that um, that ultimately would result in in the kind of the broader acceptance of, of of the of the approach you guys were taking well the world hates and loves change and uh, industrial applications in particular you know or I, I would even broaden it to business critical applications you know change can be awfully scary so you have to have a compelling advantage in order to facilitate the risk of change and so those things I think are universal in the technology industry it's as true today as it was then you know it was true when we started applying internet technologies it was true when we started applying PC technologies it's true now that we're applying AI you know the you know this whole kind of embracing new approaches to do things has a certain you know fear <laughs> associated with it uh, but fortunately because it brings compelling business advantages and I think you know most people today have seen you know quite a few changes come in their lifetimes they realize that ultimately you know you, you kind of have to be on the you know if not the forefront at least a reasonable adopter of technology or you get competed right out of the market so I think in the early days you know, there was much more change aversion mm. uh, than there is today I think today most companies have wised up to the fact that you know some level of change is required just it's just to be in the game at all right and right, if right. they're not paying attention to it you know they're they're really run a risk of being at a huge competitive disadvantage I mean industrial at one time you know it probably wouldn't change for 10 15 years I mean it was very static type of industry and a very hard industry to bring new ideas and technology into and now you know if you look at industrial today where you know most things are I think Ken is uh, you know always uh, famous for saying brown is the new green right <laughs> you're trying to re, uh, you know pull new advantage out of existing uh, systems and infrastructure and facilities you know technology technology and new technology is really the way that that can happen so, so once you had uh, achieved some success with factory soft you're the, the really the next stage was was starting to you know connect industry in a, in, a, in a more profound and a deeper way could you talk about what was uh, you know what this what, what the environment was uh, that you know that you saw and the pain points that really led you to take what you learned from from factory soft to, to start exceed and 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 talk about how that had evolved and and the ex the experience of, of putting that together into a you know into a company that was really the big certainly the biggest acquisition that that PTC had ever done and and really had provided the foundation for a complete transformation of, of their business so if you look at the back then so this was in the you know 1990s and uh, the 1990s was a pretty exciting time so I, I really feel you know very fortunate that you know I was there at kind of the early evolution of the internet and um, and the internet was everywhere I mean the stock market was booming off of internet speculation you know pits.com and the sock puppets and you know all sorts of ideas were floating around uh, about new ways of leveraging this global superhighway to do things so this was the environment that we lived in it, it was 
it was vibrant. And, um, and so one day I was visiting a, um, a factory that uh, bottled beer. I think the name of the company was Bavaria. And it was in, uh, it was in Europe. So it was either in Belgium or the Netherlands. I'm not 100% certain which. And, uh, and so I'm in this uh, bottling facility and I'm walking around and, you know, I, I don't know how many of your guys have seen a facility like this, but it, it was a symphony of amazing complexity and precision. Uh, bottles are running down the, the belt. It's a, these are giant machines that are filling these bottles at, you know, super high speeds. And, uh, you know, they're filling them as the bottles are moving down the belt and then packaging, you know, tapping and packaging. And it's just amazing. And the thing that really uh, stuck with me at the time as I'm watching this thing is I'm like, if this, if this thing breaks, I just don't see how someone, you know, at a facility that is involved in making beer would have the sufficient expertise to fix the machine. You know, the machine was at such a complexity level. And, and literally the, the light bulb went off on my head right then and there that that was a legitimate and, you know, compelling use of the internet. That instead of bringing the expertise to the facility and, you know, affecting the production adversely of that facility while we waited for expertise to travel, we could take, you know, effectively the machine to the expertise using the internet and, and fix it from far away and you know really cut a lot of time out and a lot of uh you know create a lot of value in the process and that's where the idea for you know really a, you know an internet-based iot was born and that was the foundational you know inspiration behind exceda uh, which you know we spent the next 15 years really embodying and building that uh, off of that initial vision can you talk about how the initial technology constraints changed as from the from your initial vision to the to the time that that it had really matured as a business? I mean, what were some of the 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 initial challenges, both you know technologically and and um, uh, in in terms of actual you know implementation, uh, you know from a, from a business perspective that you that you faced early and and how did that evolve over the over the time that you that you that you helped grow and build the company? Well, it's funny the uh, the initial thought was, you know, hey, you know, you turn everything into a web server and uh, you interact with it like it's a place on the world wide web and. Um, you know, so from a technological perspective, you can just imagine how stupid that is, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, it's stupid in a lot of ways. It's stupid um, uh, in the security aspects of things. I mean, who wants to put their bottling machine on the World Wide Web and expose it to all sorts of mischief? So the real first innovation that we had to do with Exceda to embody that vision was we had to come up with a different way of doing it. So we, we realized that instead of turning things into servers, we had to turn them into clients and, uh, and go with the flow of how the internet would work and how the internet works securely. And uh, that was really the big innovation. Uh, we looked at the problem, I like to say we looked at it backwards. You know, everybody in the world that had done any sort of remote telemetry at the time had always done it through modems uh, where they called out and 
reached out to a physical asset or through fire uh, through VPNs where they would call out and reach out to something. So it was always done from the company reaching out to something and then having the thing in the wild answer. Uh, when we built Exceda, we just did it in the you know, exact opposite direction. And we started out at the physical asset and we had it reach out to the central location. And, uh, and then, you know, we would facilitate the communication from there. And so that was really the, the technological breakthrough that, you know, allowed the company to operate. Uh, the thing that I think Exceda had a big advantage over on most other, you know, one of the reasons that we not only survive but thrive is we had a clear vision on the problem we were solving. I mean, ultimately, we were facilitating flow of expertise to, you know, solve issues for companies and customers. And uh, that flow of expertise, you know, ultimately led us to, you know, not only move data over the cloud, but to do things to, to effectively utilize it. And that first generation of solution, you know, was the reason that the company ended up being successful. But those were the, the main things. The main thing was one was, you know, we had to invent how to really communicate using, you know, IoT type technology. It didn't exist at the time. And then the second thing was, well, okay, now we got it talking, so what? <laughs> you know, what do you what do you do with it? And uh, and then that was a whole other range of innovations. Yeah, what what would some following up on that? I mean, were there did you have any really standout customers or use cases that that really blazed a trail that uh, that would essentially open up the you know the the market to you know, to the uses of the data. I mean, how how did you go from just connecting data to being able to uh, to really incorporate you know the vision of of delivering you know greater business value? What was you know what were the type of of people or or ideas that that really moved those the removed that vision forward? Well, so I I'm gonna say something that. Um, you know, maybe a tad bit controversial. You know, the the I, today IoT is still about moving data. You know, most people don't really have a, a clue what to do with it once they move it. And so I I felt like that's still an area that really needed a lot of innovation and needed a lot of focus. And uh, Rev Two is really about you know monetizing the data. So you know, once you move it, what do you do with it? The business case that we ended up with uh, at Exceda, which was, you know, really driven off of almost that initial vision, was, you know, humans. Uh, so Exceda was kind of a human expertise platform. We delivered human expertise at a distance. So we used the data to kind of trigger a human's attention. And then we provided kind of mechanisms using that pipe that would facilitate the flow of expertise back to an asset. So um, so think of it as a virtual truck roll. And ultimately the thing that, uh, you know, was kind of the initial core business case was to avoid truck rolls. You know, how can I do something to compress time and distance and avoid the movement of a human? And if I can do that, I can save a lot of money for both myself and for my customers, and that was uh, that was ultimately that little 
you know, kind of closed loop activity that was really what Exida was all about. The the ability to really completely, uh, yeah, uh, I would say anticipate service right through the um, through that visibility. Well, this it, what's so interesting too is is through this evolution, you know how how that has really tran- made that transition to Rev two, and I think this is this is a good good time to talk about that because you had learned all of these uh, you know tech these business insights, these uh, employed all of these technologies and really, you know, created an, an, an entire new way of thinking about connected devices and products. And uh, now you're, 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 you're launching Rev2. You've got a, um, I think you've, you've got a really unique view of, of the, you know, the problem. And I'd love to hear, you know, how, what you learned at Exceda seeded that that idea or that spark that uh, that led you to form Rev2. So uh, at Exceda, you know, pe- people wanted to move human expertise at a distance without moving the humans. And, um, you know, so that meant, like I said, using the data to kind of trigger them into action and then providing capabilities to do things. The thing that uh, I think if you look at the dynamic that we're sitting at now, you know, the interesting part there is the I guess there's two pieces here. There's data and there's humans. Now, when you look at most uh, kind of heavy industry type companies, the human part, which we've always taken as, you know, for granted is becoming a scarce commodity. You know, companies that sell, service, and um, and maintain complex things, you know, have, have real issues staffing those types of roles today. I think the average age of kind of the normal support and service and maintenance person in you know North America and Europe is 56 years of age. So a lot of these companies are staring down the pipeline of uh, somewhat of an Armageddon event where their human expertise is going to walk out the door in 10 years and they're going to be left with <laughs> with nothing. You know, they're going to be they have a real trouble of of doing things without those humans. And so the trend that's hitting now that I that I feel is kind of equivalent to the internet is AI. And so what Rev2 was about was, you know, is really kind of replicating the expertise, or I like to call it know-how, of all those humans, but doing it in a way that can become a sustainable resource for the company. So doing it in an AI way. Now, the thing that's really innovative about AI versus kind of how we have done things in the past and even how we did things with a system like Exceda, you know, um, if you look at kind of the first generation of IoT platforms, you know, the Exedas and the ThingWorks and, you know, guys like that, you know, we, we tried to present information to people. So we would move the data and present it to people and let people do things that are interesting to it. The, uh, the next generation, and, and the reason you present something to a human, because a human brain's pretty fabulous. You know, it, it can do damn near anything. You know, it learns from its mistakes. Uh, it can make leaps of logic from information that it sees to really take, you know, meaningful action. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's got a certain uh, flexibility to it that, you know, just program solutions do not. You know, when you program something, 
that rigidity is oftentimes an impediment to uh, to a company getting its job done. You know, a lot of times it's useful, but you know, in situations where expertise is valuable, it's it's pretty much an impediment. So the the benefit of AI is AI represents a problem solving technique that is a lot more fluid than anything we've had at our disposal in the past. And we're able to take information, make decisions, and then learn from the, the activity of those decisions and update our criteria so that we make new decisions next time. And uh, that really promises to change the game on how IoT data can be leveraged in both manufacturing and in, uh, you know, in kind of wide area support and service operations. So that's really where we've taken Rev2. You know, we've invented a new technology, much like we did when we, we invented IoT. Uh, we invented a way to take, you know, this kind of what I consider now an available resource of IoT information and then use it to make choices you know, that can learn from the act of their choices and to then apply action in a more automated way. And so Rev2 is really about, you know, taking that, uh, the things that, you know, your humans, the know-how that your humans have and automating it from the decision process all the way through to the, the action activity. And we wanna be able to capture that know-how and operationalize it in a way that doesn't require you know people because frankly the people aren't going to be there in 10 years right so right we need to be able to do this in an automated way well it's also the this the problem of support of of, of uh product support and and you know, and and service as well I, I mean that's a i mean that is a, a a big pain point can you talk a little bit about how uh you know how you've looked at that you know that well it is a business opportunity in a sense but just how the you know how the industry has has looked at it and you know currently where there are inefficiencies that can be you know that can they can certainly be addressed I mean because it's 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 horrifically difficult to get support on a lot of a lot of products and and it I mean it would seem that this is a uh, you know there's a market that's that's right for some some real new ways of looking at at, it, at the problem. So there was a recent um, study, and I, I, I could get this for you for your comment section later where it came from, but it was a, a recent study on support, and I think 60 to 70 percent of people would rather scrub a toilet than, you know, engage in, a, you know, a support uh, interaction. <laughs> well, not as bad as going to the dentist, but uh, that, that's, that's pretty bad. <laughs> but, you know, you look at that and, uh, you know, the thing I always think about it is no one wakes up wanting to give bad support or to do things in a bad way, but yet they do. And part of the reason they do is because all of these support systems were designed from the optic of the agent. You know, they're designed from the call center down. You know, they, they're, they're designed to optimize the call center and to process, you know, human or business, I mean, it doesn't have to be a human interaction, it can be a business to business transaction, you know, to process these things in somewhat of a factory orientation. You know, you go to level one where you do basic triage, then to level two where you 
try to get the stupid questions out of the way and then you know, then level three where you really put the pedal to the metal and you get someone that knows what they're doing. But you, you have to go through a company's uh, line of defenses first. And that's a frustrating, time-consuming, expensive process. When you look at it from uh, an IoT perspective or from the product first perspective, you know, you realize that the product today knows all. You know, they're very smart products. They, they have all the information they require. And, you know, the, the human activity of kind of pulling that information either from the customer or through remote type technologies is really a waste of time. You know, it's there and it's available for anybody that, you know, uh, wants to, to query it. I mean, it's an IoT resource today. And so we always start, you know, from that optic. We started from the product and the customer first. And really what a customer wants is just a fast solution. You know, uh, and so we wanted to build a process that instead of kind of navigating a call center, chatting with a chat bot or an automated system, you know, you could actually just ask for help. And then five seconds later, you get a solution on your doorstep that you can apply and uh, you can be back in, back in your back in your, you know, back in business, so to speak. And so that's the promise of you know, leveraging this type of IoT data and applying AI to, you know, determine these types of solutions. And then I think, you know, Rev2 also invented another technology to kind of complete the loop. We call them active solutions, which, you know, can be delivered to a customer at a location or facility and then allow that customer to walk through, a, you know, an active repair scenario where something can actually be fixed. And in the situation where maybe there's really a part broken, you know, the system can take action and, you know, order the right replacement part and organize the field service person to come do the next activity. But all of that can all that stuff can happen without having to be drugged through the mud. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 this is what's what's interesting is is how you're able to that collect this data and then be able to put it into context when there's a, a support request that's that's created. Um, you know, how do you how do you go about you know training or applying the AI? Because you I mean, you start with the data, you understand the connectivity. That's that's been kind of table stakes. But can you talk about the you know the process of you know what's involved with incorporating the AI into uh, really to get you to that concept of, of these of these active solutions? That's a great question, Ed. The, um, so again, one of our innovations, you know, most people are looking at AI today as something that's in the, the domain of data scientists. So I sell a data scientist, they show up someplace, they, you know, do an analysis and they build an AI, a magic AI model, and they put it to deployment and everyone hopes it works. The, um, you know, that's not really quite how a human brain works. <laughs> you know, you don't usually have the data scientist in the middle when you're doing something yourself. So we wanted to create an environment that, that closer was more closely related to, you know, how the human activity works. And so the way we do that is we gather the information that's relevant to, you know, let's say uh, the way a human does their job today. So if a human diagnoses uh, information, you know, diagnoses the issue with data piece one, two, three, and four, 
and we want to feed our AI data piece one, two, three, and four. So we identify the signals that we need, you know, kind of based on the human analog. And then the, the next step of it is uh, there's an exercise where, you know, you train the system to, you know, take issues and identify what the solutions were for those issues. Now, the thing that makes Rev2 unique is we now have a correlation between issues, relevant data, and then ultimately, once it's trained, solution. That information is used to generate the model. And then the model can be predictive from that point forward. So Rev2 takes kind of an industrial and dynamic, um, you know, look at AI. You know, we use training in a way which can uh, happen in kind of two ways. It can happen just through system use. So as the system encounters new issues, solves new issues, and you know, kind of gets the feedback that the issues it solves is correct, uh, that will go to the next generation of the model. And, uh, or as, uh, you know, you add new solutions for the system and then maybe retroactively train them or prospectively train them, that goes to the next iterations of the models. So Rev2, you know, automatically generates models, you know, once the training data has kind of moved a sufficient distance to warrant re-execution of it. That can be daily, or it could be once a week, or it could be a few times a day. But ultimately, you know, it's constantly learning, and it's constantly updating, and it's doing this all in an automated manner. And so what happens then in practice, as, you know, the system starts out pretty good, you know, where, you know, you're looking at maybe an 80 to 85% accuracy rate. And then over a short period of time, you're moving into the 90s, where, you know, you're operating pretty much at the level of your best people. And you can use that uh, information either to actually autonomously fix things, or you can just use that information to improve the humans that you have and help them you know, gain the expertise of the, you know, AI in their own activity and kind of cut out the triage time or mm -hmm. cut out the diagnostic time. But ultimately, the big benefit here is no data scientists required. You know, the system teaches itself and, you know, it teaches itself from, you know, developing the correlations between the relevant data and the issues that it sees. And ultimately, that that creates a much more efficient way of delivering, you know, real real support and real service to to customers uh, as as you go through that process. Now that that makes a an enormous amount of sense. Now, what what would be some of the real pain points that that you see in the market with with you know particularly you know whether it's it's certain types of industries or certain types of products you know where you think that the um, just there's a there's a there's a real need for you know for this type of support and I know it's still early days but I mean can you can you point to any types of industries or, or uh, you know types of situations where where you're where you're most optimistic yeah so we we generally start in areas that have a couple of characteristics uh, they have some level of complexity so it's a it's or it's a human thing today you know, it takes a human brain to, to analyze. Uh, so it has complexity and it, and it has connectivity. 
So there's local intelligence at the physical uh, physical asset or location, and we can gain access to that information, you know, via connectivity. Uh, that would mean that it either has an existing IoT uh, infrastructure that's been associated with it, or it's relatively easy to instrument on an event-by-event -event basis. You know, we have a kind of a lightweight IoT mechanism built into Rev2 that you know, it doesn't require constant monitoring of something, but when an event occurs, it can gather information and attach it with the event. So it's a, it's a lot more lightweight type of exercise. But ultimately, the types of things that we focus on are we focus on smart products. Uh, today, we're do, dealing with industrial smart products, so things that operate in industrial environments, uh, medical environments, infrastructure, you know, I used to call them uh, the things that have high pissed off factors. <laughs> you know, when they don't work, everyone's pissed off. And uh, so those are the areas that we focus on initially. Uh, and there's value there from a couple of perspectives. Uh, one, it's, uh, it's costly for the companies to deliver their expertise. You know, they have enormous organizations and infrastructures and it's, you know, really, really costly. And it's costly for the customers and the fact that downtime is expensive. So, um, so what we do is we create a win-win scenario where, you know, we take downtime and, you know, hopefully move it into to minutes, you know, versus much longer type of process. And uh, we cut down on a lot of the human labor associated with figuring out things by doing it in, a, in an AI way. Mm. And so it's a it's a win for both the companies that have to deliver that type of expertise and for the companies that consume it. And so the you know when we look at the market opportunities for Rev two, you know we kind of move from those complex products into you know consumer smart products. You know the things that you know your grandmother has to deploy but has no idea how to uh, to smart factories and plants and other types of areas where you know, uh, complex triage and uh, taking action, but in a, a much faster way and by creating a resource that, you know, is utilizable at scale and doesn't go home at night, you know, is valuable. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. The uh, the AIs don't get uh, they don't get headaches and they don't get cranky. So it's <laughs> pretty. Elon Musk may say they get cranky. <laughs> yeah, well, he, yeah, that's that's for sure. So wh where do you see this going? I mean, in the oh, if you look out, say another kind of five or ten years, I mean, what what impact do you think that you know these types of technologies that AI could could have across you know the businesses that you you know that you helped to, to, to have transformed already through you know being able to connect and and gain visibility and analytics into the data when you apply this this next level of you know automation and insight and and it's and almost anticipatory intelligence I mean how do, how do you how do you see things unfolding and, and are there uh, and on the flip side are there, you know, are there any challenges that 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 customers and and kind of people at large are going to have to have to get past? Well, so if you look at uh, you know twenty years ago, connectivity was crazy talk, and just moving data and having data for everything was crazy talk. Now you have the data, so so now the the next logical question is so what? And um, and so I see this whole AI revolution really is is operationalizing the data you know, how to actually make this data valuable and to leverage the data to do things. 
Now in our domain, you know, our focus with AI is around problem solving and rectification. So, you know, we're looking at data sets in order to take action on problem resolution. And that's our, our primary focus. Now today we do that in a cloud orientation. So uh, we, we pull the data in on an event. We take that stuff kind of reactively, think of it as, uh, you know, I feel ill, so what do I do? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you use Rev2 to kind of diagnose and, you know, give you the pill to make you feel better. You know, that's the, the place where we are today. Our next step with it is that uh, we're taking that AI that gets generated kind of from that type of training activity, and now we can push that dynamically created AI out into the wild. So we can push that into kind of an edge orientation and use that AI to, you know, not just react to events, but to anticipate them. So that we can kind of look at the data set of, a, of an asset and we can say, hey, you know, this is now starting to have the DNA markers of trouble. You know, and the reason we know that is because, you know, we've trained the system to know what trouble looks like. So if it doesn't know what trouble looks like, if it's a, a human's vision of what trouble might be, that's not always the same thing as what real trouble looks like. So we can see pushing that out into kind of a computing environment at the edge where, you know, the AI can start to anticipate uh, proactively these types of issues and, and potentially take, take action, you know, then and there, or at least, you know, notify someone and then walk them through the action. Because you have to remember Rev2 is not just about, mm. you know, saying, hey, something seems wrong. Rev2 says, hey, you know, this is wrong and this is what you do about it. So it's a, it's a lot more prescriptive. And I think now as you're seeing, um, you know, much like uh, if you kind of, again, roll back, back the past 20 years, you know, connectivity got, and smarts got pushed into everything. You know, processors got smaller, cheaper, and, you know, you can buy a, basically a $15 computer now, for God's sake, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's so amazing. You stick it, yeah, you can stick it in anything. Well, guess what? AI is going on chips, and that's going to go in anything. So not only will this type of technology be utilized kind of on large scale or even on mid-scale, you know, kind of aggregating edge type of apparatuses or devices, but they'll actually be able to go into all the physical types of things that, you know, are being generated and built and can execute on, you know, these types of kind of AI chips that will be coming along. So I just look at it in the next 20 years, you're going to end up with not only just a kind of a universal communicating backbone, but you're going to end up with a backbone that almost, that can communicate and self-diagnose its behavior and, um, and almost self-repair. Kind of like a Borg ship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sci-fi fans out there, right? You know, it self-corrects, self-generates, self-regenerates and, uh, and make things, uh, just make things better. And, um, and so that's where, you know, we see the technology. Now, the, the other thing, you know, I've given kind of a story a little bit more with a product orientation, mm -hmm. but process is very much the same scenario. You know, when you're dealing with a process, you know, you have data that's coming in, it's just coming in from multiple kind of endpoint types of uh, environments. But processes have similar characteristics, things can go amiss, 
And when they go amiss, you know, it's still the same sort of diagnostic process. You have to get information, understand what things are doing, and then figure out what the corrective action is. So this type of AI will, will operate both at product kind of atomic levels, but also at process levels. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's where we see it going. Well, it's it is pretty amazing to think that as as we get more and more connectivity and and really just this assumption that these connected products are going to work. I mean, I, I, I it's it's hard to imagine, or maybe it's easy to imagine a world where everything's connected, but then then it all breaks down and you can't fix it. <laughs> That's kind of what <laughs> yeah what we're what we're dealing with now. But I mean, clearly the you know the I think that scenario that you you know that you've outlined and that vision is 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 where we're going and and clearly the you know the need and the uh, the the, the the potential risks of having there are reliance on all of these connected products and, and business processes that get embedded in them uh, we you, you got to be able to anticipate you know what's gonna what's gonna knock them down and 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 bring them back up so yeah I mean I think in in 20 years you know you're not gonna talk to someone at a call center ever again you know, it's gonna that that whole thing's gonna yeah it's go away. Well, we barely do now anyway. It's that's <laughs> right. It's this oh this uh, voice response. And they they do everything they possibly can to connect you with somebody who's not very helpful anyway. But uh, <laughs> hey, it's it's really going to be the type of thing that you're you're just going to find that you know when things go amiss, yeah. it, it's going to be automated and it's going to be AI diagnosed and there's going to be an automated repair scenario or fix scenario. It's just going to be, you know, lickety split. Well, that's that's something. That's that's a world that I would like to live in. So I'm I'm pretty excited that you're, uh, uh, you know, you're work you're working to get us there. So, um, hey, one of the questions I always like to ask is uh, as we. Uh, as we wind down here, is is just a good recommendation that you like to share with. It doesn't have to be technology, but is there a you know a good book or resource over the last uh, you know last year that uh, that you could recommend to our listeners? So um, yeah, so it's interesting. The uh, you know so we I'm a sci-fi fan. Oh, awesome! <laughs> so we usually read sci-fi books. And uh, my family's all uh, all sci-fi fans as well. So we're all always into that. Uh, so we have lots of, uh, you know, lots. Of, I'm I'm waiting for uh, Martin on the Game of Thrones to release his next book, but uh, you know we've read the whole whole series there. But kind of on a on a business level, one of the challenges that I have is I I uh, deal in new concepts, so I'm always uh, you know I've invented new technologies, I've invented things that didn't exist before, and I've worked to you know, explain those things to people and to help them understand that A, it's not scary and that B, it's really, really beneficial. And so when you deal in new ideas, you don't have, you know, the whole infrastructure of a language around some, some of those ideas. You don't have the infrastructure of, you know, pundits uh, talking about those ideas. So it can be really, really challenging to, you know, help explain what you're, what you're about. So I recently did a little bit of reading around that particular area where, you know, I wanted to kind of learn how to convey those types of new ideas in a better way. And one of the books that I read in that top in that area was um, 
was a was a book called uh, "Present Anything" or "Pitch Anything" by Oren Clough. Oh, that's a great book. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, love that. Love that book. Yeah. Yeah, I, I found it extremely valuable, and uh, you know, I'm kind of uh, I can be long winded. I love to talk, and I love to kind of enjoy the conversational aspects of you know talking about how technology can make us all better and smarter and you know uh, more uh, more adept but the the whole pitch anything concept was kind of beyond the you know your typical pitch deck book I, the thing i liked about it was really how it talked about how we perceive information and kind of the steps that you have to undertake to open up people's ears so to speak and uh, so i found it very very interesting and helpful Awesome. Well, that, no, that's a that's a great recommendation, and and he's got some uh, videos that are that are helpful. But yeah, I think it goes down to the idea that decision making is uh, it, it's almost a in, inherent uh, reaction in in people where they they don't even listen to what people say. You you have to you have to position things, particularly if you're making a uh, a product pitch or an investment pitch. Um, he's uh, he did a lot of study. That's a that's a terrific recommendation. So, anyway. Dale, it's always great talking to you. I think this has been uh, enormously informative and a great vision of uh, where the world's going and, and in context of, of the, the experience and the, you know, and the innovation that you've, you've delivered uh, you know, to the industry and the, uh, you know, so as we bring us up to this point. So uh, you know, I, I want to thank you for being with us today. And I want to thank all our listeners as well for, for listening to Dale Calder, CEO of Rev2. I am Ed McGuire, uh, Insights Partner at Momenta. And we thank you all again for another episode of the Momenta Edge podcast. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.